of you who um, may be visiting this morning, Kerry Wilson usually leads worship for us, but he was unable to make it today. So uh, I get the privilege of filling in probably, I don't know, twice a year. And I always enjoy it because I love getting to, to hear the songs of God's people and to see the joy on your face. And um, the three or four of us who are up here really get to benefit so much. I wish you all could see that. It is such a privilege and a, a blessing for worship to be corporate, for this to be something we do together. And I need to hear you singing these truths. That strengthens my faith and vice versa. You need to hear your neighbor singing these things. So thank you for participating in in this ministry this morning and rehearsing these truths together. I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 as we continue our study through this book. Throughout the centuries, uh, people have sung about and written about and debated and fought over and even died for the idea of freedom. Freedom. And I want to ask the question this morning as we begin our our message, what does it mean to be free? What is freedom? Our society today conceives of freedom as being absolutely unconstrained by any external authority. I'm going to say that again because it's important that we get this common definition of freedom. People today often conceive of freedom to mean that that we must be absolutely unconstrained by any external forces, any external authority. It's the idea that no one and nothing can force me to do anything. That no one and nothing can keep me from doing anything. But listen, this idea of freedom, this conception of freedom, as enticing as it may be, it fails to recognize the universe we actually live in. And the fact is, in this sense, only God is truly free. Only God is completely unconstrained by any external forces, any external authority. And really, for created man, creatures like you and me, to desire and to reach for this kind of freedom, that's actually to try to be God. And it's Satan's oldest lie that we can be God in this sense, deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. So in this sense, with this definition of freedom, no one is really free. As Bob Dylan sang in 1979, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord. Do you guys know the song? You're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. But this doesn't mean that we as creatures cannot experience real freedom in a true sense. Not the sense in which God is free, but the sense in which we as his creatures are intended to be free. True freedom is found in being what we were meant to be. Embracing our role and our position as dependent creatures. When we do this, when we live according to our design, when we live a life that is rightly aligned with our creator, it is at that point that we are living life as it was meant to be. We are experiencing freedom and experiencing the fullness of joy that we were made for. You might say, okay, so what does that have to do with Exodus 19? And really, the answer is everything. It has everything to do with Exodus 19. The story of Exodus, this book that we're studying, is often thought of as the freeing of the Hebrew slaves. And it is. But as we read through this story, we pick up on these clues along the way that these people are not being freed from their bondage in order to be independent, self-ruling, autonomous people. 
No. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses is meeting God at Mount Sinai, speaking with him at the burning bush. And Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God answers, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That phrase is important. You shall serve God right here on this mountain, the very place, Moses, where you're standing barefoot on holy ground. You and these people that I'm going to redeem are going to serve me. We find this coming up again and again in the things that God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh in chapter 4, verse 23. He tells Moses to say, let my son go, speaking of Israel, that he may serve me. In chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. You see, God saves them so that they can worship. God saves them so that they can enter into a special relationship with him in which he will be their God and they will be his people. You see, the Exodus is A story of rescue, yes, but it's really a story of transfer. The people are being transferred from serving a cruel master in the Pharaoh to serving a benevolent master, Yahweh. From serving a wicked master in Egypt to serving the God who is absolutely holy. They're changing from being treated as slaves in Egypt to being treated as sons by God. They go from being forced to build for Pharaoh these structures. They have to scrounge for straw and mix it with with the mud. At the end of Exodus, we see them joyfully offering their gold and their silver and the best of what they have to build a tabernacle for the Lord. This is the story of Exodus. Freed from serving Pharaoh, yes, but so that they might serve God. Not only is this the plan that would bring God maximum glory, but it was also the plan that would bring maximum blessing and joy to them as God's people. They're not going from one form of oppression to another. No, they are being set free. Set free so that they might serve God as they were created and saved to do. So in our text today, what we're going to find is really the basic terms of a covenant that is being set forth, a covenant between God and these people. And it's them entering into this agreement, this relationship with the God who has saved them. So I'm going to read our text this morning, and then we'll pray together, and we'll walk through it. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Father, we ask your blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We ask that as we behold you and your glory, and and as we study how your purposes unfolded in history, I pray, God, that you would give us um, a proper fear of you. You'd give us a proper uh, sense of awe at your grace. That you'd give us a proper understanding of your calling upon us and what our response to you ought to be. I ask, God, that you would stir up in us deeper levels of faith and joy and move us to faith and obedience and worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Exodus uh, is really split into two halves. The first half is what we've already covered, chapters 1 through 18, and that's the story of the rescue of Israel and their journey out of Egypt. God saves them, brings them through the Red Sea, leads them through the wilderness. But the second half of Exodus, the second part, all takes place here at Mount Sinai. There's great emphasis on their location, if you pick that up in the first, uh, first two verses. It feels almost repetitive that they're here, they're at Sinai, they're at the wilderness before the mountain of the Lord. This place is significant. And what happens here is significant because Israel, here at Mount Sinai, will enter into a covenant with their God. And the law is going to be given, and the tabernacle is going to be built. Three very important things for the identity and the history of this nation. And in this meeting at the mountain, God, in this dialogue that we have here this morning, verses 1 through 8, God rehearses his covenant faithfulness. He says, here's all the things I've done for you. He announces his covenant plans and purposes. He says, here's what I want you to do and what I plan to do in you and through you. So what I want to do is sort of walk through this initial dialogue here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And as we do, we're going to discover three insights into God's plan of redemption. Three insights that help us understand God's purposes, how he works both then and today. The first insight into God's purposes is this. Number one, redemption depends on what God does for us. Redemption depends on what God does for us. We find this in verses one through four. Moses has come to the mountain and they've arrived at this location. And the scene is sort of set and it's filled with anticipation. God has redeemed them and now they're here. So now what? What's going to happen next? And what happens next is God speaks and he recounts for Israel all that he has done. And as always, when God speaks, when he rehearses his great and mighty works, His glory is front and center. Redemption put God's glory on display. First of all, God's glory is displayed in his faithfulness. What God does for us proves his faithfulness. We already read from Exodus chapter 3 where God told Moses, this will be a sign for you that you will worship God on this mountain. And here they are. Exactly like God said would happen. The people with Moses at their head beyond all of their wildest expectations and what people would have thought was possible. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea. They've been fed with bread from heaven and water from the rock in the wilderness. And now they're here. The sign has been fulfilled. God is faithful to his promises. This is what he does for us. Not only was the sign of Exodus 3 fulfilled by their arrival at this mountain, 
But we also see echoes here of Genesis 12. God had told Abraham he would make them into a great and mighty people. And here they are. This multitude of of up to two million people that is gathered in the wilderness of Sinai. God's glory is displayed in his faithfulness. He has done this for them in keeping his promises. But God's glory is also displayed in judgment. We see what God says to them. In verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You have seen this. I won't belabor this point because it was the theme for so much of the first half of Exodus. But as God pours out these plagues on the Egyptians and as God parts the Red Sea, God is doing these things. Why? So that they will know that he is the Lord. He does these things to be seen. And what is seen in, in God's mighty deeds is his judgment. This Pharaoh who dares to scoff at God and say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God says, I will answer that question. And I will show you who I am. All the false gods of Egypt, all the magicians and their their tricks and their their arts, it's nothing compared to God. God says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. He has put on display his power and his judgment and his glory. And this has been crucial to their redemption. If God doesn't pour out judgment on on, on Egypt, Israel is not rescued. God's glory is displayed in his judgment, but it's also displayed in salvation. Not only did they see what he did to the Egyptians, verse 4, but he says, You also saw how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's really beautiful, poetic imagery. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He has lifted them up out of their oppression, out of their suffering, out of their bondage, out of their slavery. He has lifted them up out of that place, the land of Egypt, which is not their home. That was not the promised land that God had said he would give them. That was not where they belonged. And God lifted them up out of that place. And then he brought them to himself. He brought them through the sea. He brought them through the wilderness. He provided for their need every day along the way. And he has brought them near to the place where his presence was manifested. First to to Moses in the burning bush, but soon God's glory will envelop this mountain. So much so that people won't even be able to set foot upon it. But God has, has brought them near to himself. And this is his act of salvation for them. Redemption puts the glory of God on display. It shows us his faithfulness, his judgment, and his grace. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 speaks of of what God did for them and captures this same imagery of the eagle. It says, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. It's really amazing to see that the God who is faithful, the God who judges his enemies and puts to shame the gods of Egypt, he's a God who shows great care for his people. There's tenderness and love, and faithfulness, and provision, and protection that God provides for his people. Apart from God's mighty works, apart from his faithfulness, his judgment, and his grace, there is no redemption for Israel or for us. 
The salvation that we experience in Christ shows us these same things. The cross tells us of the faithfulness of God, that every promise has been kept, that God's purpose to redeem and save his people is fulfilled. The cross tells us also of the judgment of God, that Christ bore at the cross, that he experienced there a far greater outpouring of wrath than was seen in the land of Egypt. As every sin that every believer who ever existed committed was judged fully and finally at the cross. And we see also at the cross the grace of our God and Savior. That we are lifted out of our bondage, set free from sin. And we are drawn through Jesus into relationship with God. We have much in common with the people of Israel. God does all of this for Israel, for us today, as Ephesians 1 tells us again and again, to the praise of his glory. God says that day to Israel, you have seen all that I have done for you. And he can say the same to us today. We have seen all that God has done for us. And we confess, like Israel, that our redemption depends fully on what God does for us. Israel can take no credit for standing there at Mount Sinai. And we can take no credit for being here today as worshipers of Jesus Christ. It all depends on God. It's all of grace from front to finish. So redemption depends on what God does for us. But secondly, redemption also demands a proper response from us. It demands a proper response from us. And we find that in verse 5. Moses says, to speak these words to the people. God tells him to say this. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So to this point, God has now rehearsed what he has done. It's like, hey guys, this is what I have done for you. And you've seen it. Don't forget it. And now he reveals what it is he wants them to do. He wants them to obey his voice and to keep his covenant. Redemption demands the proper response from us. And I want you to notice this, the sequence here of the Exodus. Keep in mind, God has not given them his law yet. The Ten Commandments have not been given. There are no tablets of stone. The law has not been revealed and, but God is speaking to them of their obedience and their commitment up front. He wants a commitment to full and total obedience. He says, listen, the details will come later, okay? The details of what all this entails will come later. But you need to make a decision up front whether or not you will commit yourself to me. This isn't to be something that they evaluate later on a case-by-case -case basis, well, we'll do this law, but not that law. And he wants to know up front, will you commit to obey me? And this call to obedience and commitment, notice very clearly how the, verse 5 starts. It starts, it says, now, therefore, therefore. And this is important because this full obedience that God is calling for, this commitment to his covenant it is a response to what they have already seen. What they have seen is God's judgment on their enemies and God's salvation for them. The fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and his word to Moses already. So God is saying, listen, I, 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 I'm not asking you to do this for no reason. 
I'm not asking you to do this saying, if you jump through these hoops, then I will save you. He says, no, I've already saved you. I've already done all this for you. What I'm asking you to do, what I'm calling you to do today is to respond to my grace. You see, as the one true God, he deserves all obedience simply because of who he is. He says, all the earth is mine. He is the one true God. He's already proven that the gods of the peoples are nothing. So as the one true God, he deserves our obedience fully, simply because of who he is. But as their redeemer, he has also given them even more reasons to obey. He's given them even more reasons to trust him. He's already given them some test cases. He's told Moses, throw the tree into the bitter water and I will make it sweet. He's told the people, go out every morning and gather only what you need for that day and I will provide it. He's given them all of these object lessons to show them, if you obey me, you will experience my ongoing blessing. So as God, he deserves obedience. As their redeemer, he's proven to them that he is trustworthy and that it's good for them to obey him. So what does this little word if mean? Because that's important as well. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Well, this, just even grammatically speaking, is a conditional statement. If you do this, this is the consequence. And what's implied by that is that if you do not do this, then this great and glorious privilege is not going to be fully enjoyed and fully experienced. But it's important that we think rightly about this. Does this verse mean that their salvation depends on their obedience to the law? And this is going to be a theme we touch on again and again because the rest of the book is law. So we'll get back to this. So if you have more questions after this sermon, don't worry. We're going to get to pick this idea apart over the coming months. But listen, does this statement, this little if statement, mean that their salvation depends on their obedience to the law? No, it doesn't. Keep in mind, the order of the Exodus matters. God has already initiated and entered into a relationship with these people. They are his people. At least that's what he told Moses and Pharaoh. And God doesn't lie. And he is their God. He has brought them near. This is not a condition to be brought near. He has brought them near. He didn't go to them in Egypt and tell Moses to say these words to a people who were still in chains. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, I will free you from Egypt and lift you up out of your slavery and draw you near to myself. No, he's already done those things. So this obedience is not a prerequisite for relationship with God. It is rather the condition for experiencing the ongoing blessing of enjoying that right relationship with God. It's the condition for them to experience the fullness of all of God's purposes that will soon follow. But this is more than just a casual conversation. When God says, if you will therefore obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. God is actually issuing forth an invitation, an invitation to a formal commitment. This is the formal announcement of the terms of the covenant. This is really a legal proceeding. 
And the people would have known it. They would have understood this. In fact, this whole passage takes on the same shape of many legal treaties that existed in that day among the Hittites and other peoples. It was known as a suzerainty treaty. Maybe you've heard that word before. And it was the arrangement that a strong king of a powerful nation would make with lesser peoples that were subjected to him. And that would typically involve the the terms of the arrangement would be presented. There would be a rehearsal of what this great king had done for the lesser king, the vassal nation, and would also include their obligations and responsibilities to the greater king. So this is very clearly a treaty. It, It is a legally binding agreement. And so as Moses is going to speak these words to the people, this isn't just a simple casual conversation. This is a formal invitation to make a legal commitment to God. It's the offering of a covenant relationship. So this is a key moment in the history of the nation of Israel. God has brought them out of Egypt, brought them to Sinai, and now there is the the, the proposal here of the Mosaic covenant. This is the first time this word covenant, you see it there in verse 5, has appeared in the book of Exodus. And this is an important word in Scripture. The first mention of covenant actually starts in the beginning of Genesis we find this covenant made with Noah, where God promises he would refrain from a worldwide judgment. And there's a sign given, the the giving of the rainbow. The next mention of covenant is with Abraham. And with Abraham, it's a plan not just to withhold judgment from the whole world, but to actually provide blessing for the whole world. God would bless Abraham and his descendants, make him a great nation, and through him, God promised to bless every nation of the earth. And really, that covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, is the key foundation for everything that happens from Genesis 12 forward. So now we get to Exodus chapter 19, and we find another covenant. And this, this covenant here is going to be what's called the, the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant or the, the Sinaitic Covenant, the covenant that was made at Sinai. And it refers, this covenant refers to the unique arrangement between God and this new nation that he has formed and redeemed. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. He's made Israel into a great nation. And now this covenant shows what it will look like for this nation to be in an ongoing relationship with the God who saved them. And very simply, for Israel to be in this relationship with God requires that they submit to his will, that they obey his law, that they embrace his purposes for them. They are to be holy and separate and distinct. They need to understand what it is that pleases this God, and they need to receive instructions on how to worship him and how to operate as a society that is in this covenant relationship with their God. Now, if you're a student of scripture, you'll know this, but we need to make it clear that this arrangement with, with Moses, through Moses with Israel, this Mosaic covenant, is actually a temporary covenant. It is conditional. If you keep these things, then you'll experience these blessings. And it's also temporary The moral aspect of the law, which we will get to unpack in future weeks, that aspect of God's law is eternal. It doesn't change because God doesn't change. The things that um, please him then in terms of righteousness and holiness, they please him today. The moral aspects of the law are eternal. But the civil aspects of the law, how Israel functioned as a nation, those things were temporary. 
and the ceremonial aspects of the law, the sacrifices and the feasts and the tabernacles and the priests, those things are also temporary because they would one day be fulfilled by Christ. Once Jesus comes, there are no more sacrifices, there are no more priests, there are no more tabernacles because Jesus fulfills all of those things. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament teaches us that the former arrangement between God and Israel, what we are looking at today and what will be sort of unpacked through the rest of Exodus, that arrangement with Israel will be replaced by a newer and better covenant, one that is entered into by faith in Jesus Christ, one that was promised by the prophets in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. A covenant that Jesus says is inaugurated by his blood. A covenant that the Apostle Paul says he is a minister of this new covenant as he preaches the gospel, not just to the nation Israel, but to the Gentiles. So the new covenant will be different because it will come through a different mediator, not through Moses, but through Jesus Christ. And while this Mosaic covenant is conditional, if you keep these things, then you will experience these blessings. The new covenant, praise be to God will be unconditional because all the conditions are fulfilled by Jesus on our behalf. So all who are in Christ are guaranteed the full enjoyment of every new covenant blessing. So that may make your eyes glaze over a little bit, but we need to understand these different biblical covenants. We need to know how they fit together, how they relate to one another, and how this Mosaic covenant is built on the foundation of the promise to Abraham, but it's temporary. It's a placeholder for a newer and better covenant that will one day come through Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, even though this new covenant is shown, especially in the book of Hebrews, to be better, I want us to see as we study Exodus that this covenant, the Mosaic covenant and the law that comes with it, it does reveal the grace of God. There's a temptation for those who have the beauty of Christ in the New Testament to sort of look down on this and see it almost as a negative thing. But keep in mind that this covenant with Israel actually reveals the grace of God. Consider that God has chosen these people, that he has made them into a great nation, that he has rescued them and taken them to himself as his son. And now he is inviting them to experience the joy and the blessing of an ongoing relationship with him. He's saying, I want that with you. I want that relationship with you. But if that's going to happen... Well, there's some things, it can only happen a certain way. And he's making provision for that in the law. But look at this, that God is is offering this to them, this great privilege. He's making provision for them to enjoy his presence so that he can dwell with them and be their God and they can be his people. Guys, that is grace. It's so much grace. We look at Exodus as law. But there's so much grace even in the giving of this law and even in the invitation to this Mosaic covenant. And I say all that to say this, the grace of God, that precious giving of undeserved blessing. They didn't deserve to have an opportunity to enter into this covenant, just like we don't deserve salvation. Guys, that grace always demands a response from us. When God does all this and provides all this and offers these great gracious blessings to us, that requires a response from us. As those who have been saved by God, whether in Moses' day or in our own, we are to live for God. The Mosaic Covenant will simply spell out what that looks like in that day. 
And in the New Testament, we have spelled out what that looks like for us. The Apostle Paul, who gladly called himself a servant and a slave of God, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ, think about the love of Christ on the cross. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The grace of God demands a response from us. And that response is nothing less than a life that is devoted to living for him. That's how we respond to God's grace. First, or Titus, rather, Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes that Jesus gave himself for us. That's grace, isn't it? And he did this to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who are zealous for good works. It's easy for us as those who champion the gospel of grace and who celebrate the fact that it all depends on Christ to actually devalue the importance of good works. As if, well, that's law, and that doesn't have any value in the new covenant. But the fact is, Jesus died, Paul says, to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who have a strong burning desire to obey God and to live a life that brings him glory, to live a life that is in submission to his will. That's the kind of heart that has fully seen and embraced and responded to the grace of God. Redemption demands the proper response from us. These good works, this life of obedience to God, this is how we worship and express our devotion to the one who saved us, who brought us out of slavery, who has drawn us into relationship with himself and brought us near. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's important whether in the Old Testament or the New that we see the importance of these good works, the importance of obeying God, and that we always keep the sequence right. Because whether in the Old Testament or the New, the fact is we never earn salvation by our good works. It's always our response to the grace of God. We live for Christ. We do good works. We obey the will of our Heavenly Father, not so that we can be in a relationship with Him. No, but because we already are. We don't do good works so that God will save us, but because he already has. Not so that we can be brought near, but because we have already become the children of God by grace through faith. And God says, this is how my children should live. We must always keep that order right. Redemption demands the proper response from us, a response to his grace. And what that response looks like is total and full obedience and devotion to the one who has saved us. This is the proper response to grace. There's a third insight that we find in this text. Number three, redemption not only depends on what God does for us and demands the right response from us, but redemption also directs us into God's purposes for us. It directs us into God's purposes for us. 
He says in verse 5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses writes this passage down, and he does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he does it for a reason. And the reason is this, not only because successive generations need to know Israel's history, but also because those successive generations in Israel, they also need to know their future. They need to know not just where God brought them from, but where God was bringing them to, what God intends for them to be. If the first 18 chapters of Exodus record the fact of Israel's redemption, the next several chapters will reveal what they were redeemed for. And what they are redeemed for, what God's purpose for them is, is given three descriptions here in this text. First, they will be a treasured possession, verse 5. A treasured possession among all peoples. God makes the point, listen, I own everything. He says there, all the earth is mine at the end of verse 5. But Israel will have the great privilege of being God's distinct treasure. God owns it all. The people who hate him and the people who love him. The earth, the sea, the sky, the heavens, the creatures, all of it is his. Every atom belongs to him. But those whom he has chosen, those whom he has redeemed, those whom he has bought with the blood of his son, he loves them with a special love. He owns them in a different way than he owns everything else. They're his distinct treasure. They are especially valuable to him. And it matters as those redeemed by God that we know who we are and that we know whose we are. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel needed to know how God saw them, that, that God desired to take them to himself as his treasured possession. You know, there's a lot of talk about privilege in our day and age. We're almost tired of that word because of how often it gets used and how wrongly it sometimes is used. Listen, the ultimate privilege is to be loved by God. There is no greater privilege. To be chosen and redeemed by him. To be set apart as his treasured possession. And listen, is, this is not a privilege to renounce. This is not a privilege to feel guilty about. No, this is rather a privilege that ought to motivate worship and devotion and obedience to God. And it ought to inform our understanding of who we are to be, his treasured possession. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then a second description, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Now, some of you might be thinking, now, wait a second. 
The whole nation of Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests. I thought that only the tribe of Levi were to serve as priests. And you would be right, in a sense. Only the Levites would serve officially in the tabernacle and later the temple when Solomon builds that. But that is within the nation Israel. Within the nation, you have 12 tribes, and one tribe is set apart for a special purpose, to have a special ministry on behalf of the rest. But just as the Levites served as priests for the 12 tribes, the nation itself is to serve in a priestly role among all the other nations. God's intention from the beginning was not just to bless Israel. Remember what God said to Abraham? He would bless him and make him a great nation and through him bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Israel was to be a blessing to the world. And the way they would do that is by representing God in the world and by leading the nations into the worship of Yahweh. They're to have a priestly function. That's what God saved them to do. That's what he wants them to be. This is part of the purpose of their redemption. There's a third description that God gives. If they are going to be his treasured possession and bring pleasure and honor and glory to God, if they are going to be successful in their mission, in this priestly calling, then they must thirdly be a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To be holy means at the bare minimum to be pure and undefiled, yes. But it also has this idea of being set apart, being unique. If they're going to please God, if they're going to fulfill their priestly calling, they needed to be different than the pagan nations around them. They needed to be separate God saved them and brought them out of Egypt and was now going to set them apart and devote them to a specific purpose. And it's important to keep these three statements in mind because as we study the laws, we study the Ten Commandments, as we study all the, the, the things having to do with the tabernacle and the altars and the priests, keep in mind that it is crucial that Israel maintains distinctions between them and the pagan nations around them, that their worship be different, that they be holy, that they be fully devoted to doing God's things God's way. Otherwise, they will never fulfill this purpose that God has for them. So this is like the preamble to the law. And we'll come back to it again and again because it explains so much of what's going to come next. God wants them to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is what Moses proposes to the people. Here is the formal offer of God's covenant with you. So how does Israel respond? Verse 7 says, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, them, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, some people would criticize this response as if Israel is somehow being overconfident. Some people might accuse them of assuming that they can be righteous in their own strength. But regardless of their later failures to follow through, really, this is the right response to the God who saves you and then calls you to obey him. This is the right thing to say. 
All that the Lord has said we will do. They're very simply saying yes to their God. Yes, Lord. They're not coming to the table with a counter offer. Well, how about if we obey 80% of the things you command us to do? And thinking maybe God will counter and they can sort of, you know, meet in the middle. They're not negotiating. All that the Lord has said we will do. They're not trying to dispute his claim over them, saying, I know you did these things for us, but you're really asking for too much. They're not disputing his claim over them. And they're not questioning his purposes. They're not saying, well, we don't really want to be a priestly kingdom. I'm not sure if we uh, want to be completely holy and distinct. They're not questioning God's purposes. No, they're submitting to God. Yes, Lord. Yes to your call. Yes to your command. Yes to your purposes. Yes. Really, any different response would only be rebellion or unbelief. So I think this is the right response. In fact, God is pleased by this response. We see this as Moses comments on this event in Deuteronomy chapter 5 when he's sort of retelling this story to the next generation. He says in verse 28 of Deuteronomy 5, the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. They are right. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God approves of this kind of response. He says, yes, I loved it when you said that and I wish that your heart would always stay there because then you would please me and, and you would experience all the blessings that I intend for you. So their words are appropriate here. The failure was that later their hearts would change. Later, they would turn aside from this initial response and they would worship the golden calf. They would refuse to go into the land of Canaan because of fear of the strength of the inhabitants. They would mingle with the pagan nations in the land and and intermarry with them and participate in their pagan and immoral worship. They would adopt their sinful customs and idolatrous ways. And because of their later failures, We all know that Israel never quite lived up to this glorious and grand purpose that is here laid out for them to be God's treasured possession, to have a priestly function among the nations and to be holy and unique and distinct. They fell short. They fell short. They started off well, but they did not finish strong. And that brings up a pretty significant question. Did God's purposes fail? Did God try to do this thing with Israel and it didn't work? So God had to move to plan B called the church. No. Although Israel never lived up to this calling, although Israel never kept the law completely, although they failed to be holy and fulfill their priestly calling, God did not abandon this purpose. God did not fail. In fact, he preserved Israel. He disciplined them. They had to go through captivity and and other things like that. But through them, as he preserved this remnant, through the line of David, through the tribe of Judah, God would bring forth his own son, the Messiah. And Jesus would come to be the perfect Israelite. It's amazing as you read the, the gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus retracing the steps of the nation, even coming up out of Egypt, 
even being out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights like they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And when Jesus is tempted, he doesn't fail. And Jesus keeps the law perfectly. And as Jesus is baptized, he says it's for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness. And the Father announces from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus came to do what Israel could not, to represent them, to keep the law, to live a holy life, to be one who was set apart to God and his purposes, and to become a great high priest who would bring the blessing of salvation to the world. You see, God would accomplish his purposes through Israel, through the seed, Jesus Christ, who would embody the nation. And the beauty of, Christ, of, of God's plan through his son is that now through Jesus, the blessing of salvation is spreading to the nations and the church is being gathered. And we today, even though not Jews, are being united to these same purposes. God's purposes for, for Israel now have expanded to include all who are in Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He's talking about Exodus chapter 19. He says, this is you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, God's purposes for the world would not be thwarted by Israel's failure. And in fact, one day God will restore and renew even this sinful nation, Israel. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of a future restoration that is coming, a revival, a, a turning to Jesus where God will bring these people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, back into his household. His, circle, his, his plan will come full circle, and it will all be for his glory. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's a day coming in which a chosen remnant will recognize Christ, Jesus, as their Messiah, and they will repent. Isaiah speaks of the restoration of Israel in the kingdom that is to come. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 21 says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Listen, God's going to get the credit for finishing what he started. And restoring and renewing these people bringing them into his kingdom. The apostle Paul addresses this question at length in Romans chapter 11, and he affirms that even now God is preserving a believing remnant. There are believing Jews who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. And Paul says they are only a foretaste of what is to come. In Romans eleven twenty five, 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. 
But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And if you believe in the doctrine of election, that's a really good thing. That the one who called us and chose us, he never changes his mind. And that's just as much true for the nation Israel as it is for you and me today. And there is a future day of restoration and revival coming where God will finish what he started. So does Israel's failure mean that God's purposes of them being a holy nation and a kingdom of priests and being his treasured possession, is all that just sort of failed? No. No, even though they have failed, Christ has not. And God will fulfill these purposes. God never fails in his redemptive purposes. Israel does. We do. But Christ is not. And it is through the work of Jesus Christ that Jews and Gentiles alike are made to be a treasured possession for God, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. This is what redemption is for. It's what redemption is for. Redemption directs us into God's purposes for us. This tells us who we are to be and informs what we are to do. So how do we respond to all this? Well, God's summons of Israel here, it's not just for Israel, it's for us as well. It teaches us that our salvation, just like theirs, depends on what God does for us. Our salvation demands the proper response, a life of worship and obedience. And our salvation also has a purpose. It directs us into God's purposes for, for, for us. So how do we respond? Well, first of all, I hope you hear this message this morning. Number one is a call to obedience, a personal call to you to obey the things that the Lord our God commands us. God saves us so that we will serve him. He redeems us for his purposes. So how will you respond to his grace? Will you say, wow, thank you, Jesus, for getting me out of my slavery to sin. I feel way better now. All my guilt and shame is gone. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me from the wrath to come. I'm so glad I don't have to be afraid of future judgment. But you know what? I'm really going to take it from here and sort of live for myself for the next several decades until I get to heaven. No, <laughs> that is not the right response to the grace of God. This is a call to believers for obedience. We must respond in humility and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ and completely commit ourselves to do whatever our God commands. Really, this is a fundamental aspect of what it really means to repent and believe. Those who are saved who belong to Christ are those who repent of sin and believe in the gospel. And some of the things we repent of, that includes our autonomy. We turn away from that. We lay it to the side and say, I belong to Christ. I embrace Jesus as my master and Lord. We are submitting ourselves to his will and repenting of our self-rule. You see, the life of faith, like the life of repentance, must continue. We keep repenting. We keep believing. We keep repenting of our autonomy. And you know what we keep believing? We keep believing that whatever God reveals in his word is good and necessary and right. And we show that faith by our obedience. There's a whole book in the New Testament called James that's about that. If you believe, here's how you will live. 
So listen, as Christians, we cannot simply read through Scripture and evaluate on a case-by-case basis whether or not we're going to obey God. We don't just pick and choose the things that we like. We don't reserve the right to politely pass on matters that we find difficult or undesirable. No. No. Our response must be, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. To be willing to go wherever the text takes us, even if our culture says, that's not how marriage should work, or that's not how religion should work. This is what's righteous, and this is what's unrighteous, even at the sticky parts, even when it's hard for us, and we don't like what the Bible says. The challenge is to bring our heart in line with God's, and to fully submit to whatever he says. And really, this is true freedom. What we will find as we give ourselves to God this way is that we live life the way God intended and experience the fullness of joy that he intends, that we are truly free as we are fully serving God. So I hope you hear this message today, first of all, as a call to obedience. But secondly, I hope you hear this message as a call to embrace our true identity. Embrace our true identity. We need to know who we are. And we need to know whose we are. Again, there's so much talk about identity today. Um, In fact, one of you all sent me a screenshot, a a picture this week of an exercise um, that you were doing at work for some sort of ongoing, you know, work development type stuff. And it was all about these different categories of identity. You know, your ethnicity, your gender, sexuality, your socioeconomic status, all of those things. We're put into a lot of different categories today. But listen, we need to understand our identity first and foremost, biblically. Biblically. And the status that matters most is whether or not you know God. And if you are loved by him, if you've been chosen and redeemed by him, that means you are his treasured possession. That he cares for you. That he loves you. If you belong to God, it means that you have this privilege of belonging to this priesthood of the believer and that you have a job description, you have responsibilities and that you have a responsibility to be holy and separate and distinct. This, all of this flows from our identity, knowing who we are and who we are meant to be. And out of this identity flows our mission. We exist for his glory, to do his will and carry out his purposes. So we have to have this understanding of our identity clear. And it needs to come not from culture, not even from science, but from scripture, from scripture. Let this truth of our identity as the redeemed of the Lord, let this truth shape your thinking. Let it shape your sense of self. Let it shape your loyalties. Let it direct your passions and let it form your priorities. Let it impact your decisions. We belong to God. We've been saved for his purposes And so we need to devote ourselves to that. Exodus is a record of what God has done in history. And we see there a pattern reflected that's reflected in our own salvation. Listen, God and his purposes have not changed. So may we answer the call of Christ with a complete commitment to him. And may we embrace his purposes for us as we seek to serve him in this world. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Go before our Lord.
God, we thank you that you have pursued relationship with us, that you took the initiative, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us and bring us out of our bondage and slavery to sin. Lord, please give us a clear vision of who we are as those who have been redeemed by you. Give us a clear understanding of what it is that you want us to be and the things that you want us to be committed to in this world. Lord, I pray that you would give us a resolve to obey you completely, to say yes, Lord, to whatever your word says. God, it's hard for us. It's a challenge sometimes to our faith. It's a challenge to our flesh. And even the times when we want the right things, we sometimes lack the strength to do it. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our desire to obey you and that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to do the things that you've called us to do. Lord, we cry out for your help, but we also also want to express our gratitude for your grace and our desire to bring you glory. And we thank you for the great privilege it is to be your treasured possession. Lord, we pray that you'd bless the, the reading and the preaching of your word, that this text would bear fruit in our lives that it would give us clarity and it would help us to live a life that brings glory to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.